Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 148 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, the Vice President of Community Partnerships at the Cohen Veterans Network, Dr. Caitlin Thompson, joins the show to talk about the public health approach to suicide prevention and the need for community partners to partner with providers in the Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs to service the military-affiliated population, which means all veterans. We just need to make sure that we are embracing all veterans. We are not, you know, this the the narrative that we hear about all the time, which is still an important narrative, which is still um, because it certainly does happen that our youngest veterans um, deploy, they see combat, they're they're devastated, they come home with PTSD, and they die by suicide. And again, and that's again that does happen. And we also need to remember that the vast majority of our veterans who are losing their lives right now are our older veterans, many of whom have never deployed, um, and who are coping with things like retirement, like loss of a spouse, things that, um, you know, and, and then you bring in the, the uh, access to firearms, um, which we know that veterans use firearms more than non-veterans when they're feeling suicidal. And um, it's, it's a confluence of factors that really can come together, but we also cannot forget our older veterans. Before we get started, I want to give listeners a heads up as we approach the 150th episode of Headspace and Timing. I'm going to be doing something different. I have a number of great guests lined up over the next month or so, so keep tuning in. And after that, I'm going to be putting new guest interviews on hold while I develop a new project. I'll be going back and putting together shorter episodes based on previous conversations. So keep subscribed, keep listening and giving feedback. To keep up with the latest, sign up for our newsletter by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash update. So we're announcing the new project. Starting in January of 2020, I'll be partnering with Military Times to start a new podcast, Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. This will be a show that brings the knowledge of experts on suicide and the military-affiliated population to the communities that need it. I'll be co-hosting the show with a nationally recognized suicide prevention expert. It will be a weekly show that will be limited to 50 episodes released throughout the year. I'm looking for those of you who want to get in early on the new project. I've started to build a community of listeners on Flick, so you can interact with other listeners, provide feedback on the show, or interact with the host and the guest. While on your phone, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash community to learn more. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. 
If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, I really appreciate bringing on uh, mental health professionals who have a wealth of experience around a particular topic. Uh, and my, my guest today is definitely that, Dr. Caitlin Thompson. She has a very long history in working with suicide, both in the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Suicide Crisis, the Veterans Crisis Line, uh, and now working with the Cohen Veterans Network. So I'm really eager to get into this conversation. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dwayne. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I'm, I'm really appreciative of, uh, of being able to uh, to be able to have the conversation. Uh, before we get started, I, I really, and as you and I talked a little bit, I really want to talk about um, the public health approach to service member veteran military family suicide, more specifically increasing access to care, as that's where you and I as clinical professionals um, really fall into this. But before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a bit about yourself. Great. Thank you. Um so I uh, am a clinical psychologist by training. Part of my story in terms of getting into the field of suicide prevention with veterans was, was one in which I was in Denver. I, I did my internship at the Denver VA. And during the first couple, the first year of my internship, um, I was, I had worked with three veterans who had died by suicide during that year. And Dwayne, as you know, as a clinician and, and others who may be listening, um, this is, this can really rock your world. And it really rocked mine. And I was just a very, very young and I really didn't understand how, how this could happen. Um, and especially I was just so devastated by the fact that it was three young veterans. They were all under the age of 40. Um, and it was at that point that I really became interested in better understanding what was going on um, with veterans and suicide. And this was back in 2006. So um, this was early on in our post night with our post 9-11 generation, but also really also thinking through and meeting with and knowing much more about our older veterans and the vulnerabilities that, that they have in terms of suicide. So um, ended up working, uh, doing research for a couple of years um, in suicide prevention for veterans, then moving on to work for the Veterans Crisis Line for, for over four years, which was uh, certainly a highlight of my life, was working with this extraordinary group of, of men and women who are on the phones 24-7. Um, they have, the, the, the crisis line has expanded so much in the last number of years um, so that there are hundreds of people who are answering calls every day. Um, and it was just an honor and a privilege to work with them, then moving more into the policy space and administrative space and overseeing the suicide prevention program um, for uh, a few years um, nationally for the VA 
And then a couple of years ago, um, deciding that it was time to make a change and being able to move to a place where the mission to care for our veterans and their family members was is so strong and uh, working with Cohen Veterans Network, um, which is setting up mental health clinics throughout the country, primarily for post 9-11 veterans and their family members, as well as um, service members' families. Um, and really helping to fill a gap that uh, that I was we weren't able to fill as well in VA, particularly uh, with family members. So, um, still working in suicide prevention, uh, but also you know really helping with this um, with this initiative to expand, as we're going to discuss, expand access to our veterans um, and service members. And, you know, we talk about getting to the left of the crisis, getting moving upstream. And what that means is really reaching out and getting veterans and really anybody help before they get into crisis. And this is um, certainly a a piece of the the public health um, model that we need to really address. You know, I um, it, it's interesting to me, uh, and and obviously in many ways heartbroken, uh, heartbreaking that uh, a lot of us who enter into, uh, in some ways, the mental health field, we have a lived experience, maybe family members um, with mental health, um, uh, but even more specifically, um, focusing on suicide. Um, that we have a lived experience with this, um, you know, in in your experience as a clinician, um, losing. Uh, clients and clients dying by suicide. And, and I've told the story before and I won't get into it uh, too far here, but one of my first or my first suicide intervention was with my own father who was a Vietnam veteran. Thankfully, we got him the, the care that he needed, but that really set me on the path to say that the, the, the veterans of this generation are going to need the support of the, the veterans of my father's generation. Um, and, and which has really caused this to be a, a passion project or, or a, a focus of mine. Um, but I'm thinking that, you know, many of us know, especially clinicians, um, but many veterans also know people. Um, we, we talk about how we've lost more personally. I've lost more service members, more of the people that I deployed with to, um, to suicide than we did while we were deployed. Um, many, many veterans talk about that. Um, some veterans talk about how maybe um, mental health professionals who never served can't understand what they're going through. But I think this is a common point that we really know how hard it hits us when we lose a veteran, whether we're a service member ourselves or a clinician, when we lose someone to suicide, it's, it's extremely painful. You're absolutely right. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for, for saying that. And, um, you know, your experience also with your father is just so important and poignant and speaks to the fact that really almost anybody in the United States has been touched in some way, whether it's someone that they are, is in their family or whether it's someone who they've been treating or whether it's um, a celebrity that they loved and lost. Um, But you're, you're right. We all have this very common experience and one where we can really relate in many ways. Um, you know, I, and the, the, the idea that you've lost so many of your, of your friends, um, and people that you've served with, um, to suicide, uh, compared to even combat is just so striking and, um, and speaks to this, the need to continue to talk about this, what is going on and how can we make sure that we are taking care of 
each other and taking care of ourselves. Yeah, uh, no, I, I certainly agree. Um, and, and you mentioned the, you know, getting left of the boom and, and the public health approach. Um, wrote a series of articles on it uh, earlier in the year. Um, and one of the areas that you and I as clinicians um, that really focus on, I mean, you know, yes, we do provide postvention support. Um, and yes, we do provide, um, you know, uh, uh, counseling on access to lethal means and things like that. But primarily our focus would be on uh, providing the best access to care for service members, veterans, and their families. Um, a lot of people would think, especially those who never serve, say, well, a veteran has the VA or a veteran, you know, the, the, the veteran has easy and open access to all the therapy they want. They're just not getting it. And it's not quite that simple, I think. It isn't. No. And um, if only it was. But unfortunately, you know, so we we have what a, about 20 million veterans, a little bit less, I think, at this point um, in the United States. And um I, you might know the numbers better than I do, but it's about seven to eight million who actually do are able to or do access VA care. So that leaves a huge percentage and huge numbers of millions of veterans who are not using VA care. Now, many of them are have their own um, private insurance through their employers. Others uh, are using Medicare, Medicaid, um, but the VA was wasn't designed to really care for every single veteran. Otherwise, it would just be completely overwhelmed. Um, and so there need to be other places for our veterans to get the care that, that, um, that they absolutely deserve. So, um, so access to care is, is so important. You know, another thing that I think that you, you would understand also living out West is how rural, um, rural there, the United States is, and we know that veterans and really anybody, but rural veterans in particular have higher rates of suicide than those who are not living in rural areas. And so another piece that we're really looking at, and I know the VA is too, is how to find those veterans who may be at high risk for suicide or just, you know, um, struggling with mental health problems, but don't have um, don't have a place close by where they can get the care that they need. So one of the things that we're doing that um, that VA has also done is really expanding our telehealth services so that uh, veterans and family members are able to um, to get care from the comfort of their own home, from their car during a lunch break during their um, well during their working day. Um, so that they can talk on the, their phone or on their computer um, and engage with clinicians um, in a, the same type of way that they would uh, in an office space. So it's, which I think is really the wave of the future in so many ways for, for getting care. So that's one piece of access that we're so focused on. Another thing um, in terms of access is breaking down barriers. So, you know, barriers to care, what is, well, one is, of course, having a local place to go um, where you can get care. Other barriers to care may be um, child care. So not being able to leave because you're taking care of two kids who um, and you just don't have the time to drive them, put them in their car seat, get them to a place where... Um, where uh, th then, you know, trying or trying to find a babysitter to watch them. Unfortunately, with 
Cohen Veterans Network, and, and I think other places are starting to do this too, is um, we provide childcare so that uh, veterans and family members can go sit for the hour that they need to get their care and then have in the next room a child care person who is watching their kids. Also transportation um, concerns, we make sure that we cover that too. So really breaking down barriers is, is so important. You know, and, and it is, and, and there's those barriers, um, there's the external barriers, some of those that you mentioned, just not being in a location, um, being here in Colorado, um, great colleagues with the, the folks um, up in Denver with the, the Cohen Clinic here, um, really supportive of the work that you're doing in Denver. And um, But the Central Mountain region has very, very few resources. And, and a colleague of mine who works in the, the homeless veteran space talks about Grand Junction, which is on the western slope um, of the Rockies, uh, closer to Utah. Uh, than than to the front range of Denver. He talks about how over the last eight, 10 years, Vietnam veterans are starting to come down from out of the hills because they simply can't, they're 70 years old now and you're not living in, in your shack, uh, you know, um, anymore and you have health concerns. And so these are, you know, um, veterans who, who have very little socialization um, and now they're seeking care and post 9-11 veterans are going up into the hills and taking that. So this is going to be this, and that speaks to not just the the external barriers to care, but the internal barriers to care of the individual veterans seeking care um, until it becomes this crisis point, which is where you and I, many times, if if you know, as clinicians, we're like emergency room doctors. You know, we're we're only right. there when the crisis, during the crisis, or after the crisis has happened, instead of being more like the preventive medicine, which we all want to be. Um, so the barriers are are really. Um, both external and internal. You're absolutely right. Yes. And, and, and what do we know about some of the risk factors for, for veterans who are at high risk for suicide? What are the things that we could be working with um, veterans on um, before they reach the crisis point? Well, one of the things that we know is that veterans who pain, uh, physical pain um, tends to be one of the primary reasons that we that we learn that veterans say that they those veterans who may have had a suicide attempt they say i can't i can't cope with the physical pain anymore and so really helping those veterans through um getting the care that they need um for their physical pain um also you know we really know that relationship problems and relationship concerns as well as financial concerns legal issues that may come up these are also in many ways the breaking point for many of our veterans um at the VA uh we had um and i believe it's still going on but it's called the behavioral health autopsy program where we were uh, any veteran that died by suicide that we would learn about. We would then go in and do uh, something similar to what a psych autopsy is, which is defined as being when when you lose someone to suicide, you're going to go back, you're going to interview the people that are closest to them. Um, we we did record reviews, we interviewed their clinicians. And the things that came out of, especially with the interviews, is what what was going on that month or the the couple of months before you lost that your loved one, and so many times it's there was a breakup, there was a divorce, um, there were legal problems. So being able to really support veterans during those times um, can then 
stave off the eventual crisis of of suicide. But you know, you're so right, Dwayne. The the kind of the acting as the emergency room doc, as opposed to um, the primary care physician, who really is meeting with somebody, you know, each year and checking checking and the their blood pressure and you know just that basic. Um, check in terms of how somebody's doing we would wouldn't it be great if we could really get to um get to that preventive preventive place it it, it would and and i'll um uh so to to give props to cohen and even more specifically we had um uh, uh the cohen clinic here in colorado their outreach manager matt wettenkamp on the show um, and, yep. and he specifically said exactly that same thing he said wouldn't it be great if the um if going to a mental health provider is like going to the dentist, right? You go to the dentist twice a year mm-hmm. and you get your cleaning. And if there's something more, the dentist is going to call you back and you need to yeah. take care of it. But if there's nothing more, okay, we'll see you in six months or we'll see you in a year. Um, and, and again, yep. this idea of, and, and many of us have kind of floated that, but then that also leads to the fact that, um, you know, yes, the VA is doing their, their autopsies, the psychological autopsies, the su- suicide autopsies. Um, but many people know uh, the numbers are the 20 a day numbers, but only six of the veterans who died by suicide, I believe that was 2016. Um, only six of them had been engaged in the VA. A portion of those numbers, I think, were active duty numbers or, or, you know, currently drilling guards and reserves. But we still have at least another six, perhaps, that aren't in the VA that we don't have those psychological autopsies. And that's where community providers need to be able to understand military mental health service member the cultural competence piece which is another area that um the community providers are lacking to be honest you're yes you're absolutely right and um you it's so that's one thing that is so important is even having community providers just ask the question have you ever served in the military just that basic initial question and and the the work that's been done in terms of military cultural competence um, in terms of research and, and training has found that community providers, if you're listening, um, please don't ask, are you a veteran? Um, ask, have you ever served in the military? Because one thing that has been found is that uh, many people, many veterans, many male veterans who have never deployed um, will say, no, I'm not a veteran. Um, and many female veterans, whether they've deployed or not, don't call themselves, quote, or don't consider themselves to be veterans. I think that, that that's changing, but it still isn't enough. So that people who have served in the military, and it could have been that they only served in boot camp, like they only, they only went to boot camp. And so, um, and then they left for whatever reason, but that's important clinical information. Um, and so also, uh, as you know, thinking about access to care, we also need to remember the families. And so schools um, in California in particular have been very good about finally um, really learning about who, which children have parents who are, have been in, served in the military or who may currently be serving in the military. Um, and then there's there are trainings about the unique characteristics and the unique problems that may come up and strengths that may arise um, from having a, a service member, um, having somebody serve in the military or having a somebody who's in the family who's a veteran in the military. Um, I think that that's another piece that we need to really be 
focusing on and, um, you know, having pediatricians um, and, and any primary care provider make sure that, uh, that there's an understanding of, of military culture. Um, and whether it's a veteran themselves, whether it's a spouse of a veteran, whether it's a parent or a child of a veteran, um, there are unique things that arise being a piece of the military. And, you know, one thing that I, I continue to um, to say, and because I've heard it so many times, is that if you have somebody serving in the military, basically your whole family is serving in the military. And um, and that's just such an important thing that we need to really be wrapping our arms around the entire family, too. Now, I appreciate that you brought that up. I, I definitely uh, think that people assume, and, and maybe I'm making assumptions about people's assumptions, but, um, you know, everybody's taken care of. Well, that staff sergeant that got out of the army after, you know, seven years and three deployments, at least that staff sergeant has the VA, their spouse, who likely served those three deployments with them in, in very different ways, has nothing, right? Has no yeah, resources. Exactly. And we're talking about mental health um, and, and counseling and therapy, being a caregiver for <laughs> a conversation with my wife after all of my deployments is very different than maybe my conversation. Um, and she recognizes right. the, the, uh, the challenges um, that, that comes with being a military spouse. My kids, when I started to deploy, um, they were in first and second grade or kindergarten and first grade. And when I stopped deploying, they were in approaching high school, right? So there's an entire, you know, how the seven-year-old them dealt with it is different than how the 13-year-old them dealt with it. And so these are the, the challenges, again, this access to care. And we don't know, we, we know the 20 a day for veterans. We don't know what the number of uh, military spouses, um, the DOD, I believe, is supposed to be um, releasing reports soon on active duty military spouses uh, and the suicide rate. We have a significant suicide number and rate here in El Paso County. We have a significant number of, of military and veteran family in our population. Um, our teen suicide rate has hit the national news, but we don't know how many of those teens were children of military families. And so this, this gets into, it's not just veteran service, uh, suicide, it's the service member veteran and military family suicide. You're, yep, you're absolutely right. And, um, and so it is, it, yeah, when you think about, thinking about, um, the, just the impact of, of having, you know, I'm just thinking specifically about your family of having, and I have a six-year-old now, but, you know, having, having dad going and deploying to a place where you, it's, you've seen pictures and you talk with him probably on Skype and that sort of thing, but it's a very different experience than, um, than many, most people, uh, experience with parents. So it is, I, I really, um, I really value the fact that Cohen has taken this on in terms of a military family um, uh, focus. Um, but and and I encourage anybody, whether they are um, working within a military family clinic, but just in general at any community clinic or community space or at schools anywhere where um, where children or spouses or caregivers could be touched um, to really learn more about military um, the military culture. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's really an excellent point. You know, again, and, and I'm really going off of my experience here in Colorado Springs. Um, there is an assumption of likelihood that if a 
uh, definitely if they come into our clinic, they're, they're affiliated in the military in some way, um, in, in a private clinic that, that really focuses on, on military and veterans. Um, but say they're in, you know, um, I don't know, Manhattan, Kansas. Well, no, that's outside yep. of Fort, but, but somewhere, um, you know, somewhere in the Plano, Texas, for example, um, that, uh, maybe the, the spouse had come in, um, uh, to seek treatment or, or, or what have you. Um, and they just moved back from seven years in the military, but that provider wouldn't know to even ask. And that's a huge aspect of, um, that client's, um, that's clients, that client's background. It can really, as clinicians, exactly. you and I can definitely see that that would change the things that we even talk about, much less give us a deeper understanding. So you're talking about community providers that aren't in very heavily military towns like San Antonio or San Diego or Colorado Springs, um, that right. all providers everywhere need to be able to ask this question. They really do. And then let's think of, let's remember also our garden reservists, right? So, um, you know, the guard has, um, it, someone gave me the, the, the quote that there's at least one national, um, guards person or reservist in every single zip code throughout the country. So that's everywhere. <laughs> so, and they have all served in the military, um, and are, you know, and have their, had their own unique experiences. Many, many, many have deployed, um, and, you know, I think, Dwayne, that another group that of veterans that we also need to be very aware of are um, are, are veterans in our military who have never deployed. Um, one study has uh, came out a few years ago saying that, in fact, um, veterans who hadn't deployed tend to have very high rates of suicide. I I uh, who hadn't even deployed, let alone seen combat, and I think that. There are so many possible reasons for that, um, including never being a part of, you know, the, quote, big mission of, you know, being a country at war and being part of the experience of deploying, being a part of your um, of a group um, who is really focused on the same mission Um and I think a lot of guilt in terms of our, you know, my, my friends all went and I didn't. Um, and so there's, there are vulnerabilities there too. So even, you know, making sure that even those veterans who have never deployed are also getting the care that they deserve. I, I can't tell you, it's such a straight, I, I, how many times I'm usually in a, it's usually in a taxi or, um, or like a Lyft or an Uber where I'm, I'm talking with somebody about what I do and I, uh, and they say, well, yeah, I served in the military for a couple of years, but I don't go to VA. I don't get care services because I never deployed because I don't think I deserve it. And I just am just so blown away by that because anybody who has served in the military deserves, deserves all of the services that are available to them. And so really when you're talking with veterans who, um, Again, who who have never even, let alone seen combat or or deployed. Please make sure that you are also using the same questions and the same and understanding that this is they have been a huge piece of the military culture, um, just like anybody who has deployed. Uh, you're exactly right. Um, it, it actually puts me in mind of an event that happened. Actually, you and I were were at the um, uh, the event with the um, SAMHSA's uh, SMVF Technical Assistance Center uh, for the Governor's Challenge back in February, and I 
happened to sit yeah. down and have breakfast with another gentleman that I thought was with our convention, was with a totally different convention, the hotel. He and I have yeah. a, a breakfast together anyway. It turns out that he had served in the Navy, um, yeah. 78 through 80. He said, I served three years, and as soon as I walked off the gangplank, I dropped my duffel bag in the bay and never looked back. He was like, it wasn't, yep. he said it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. And he said, and I went on and I, I lived my life. Um, but he, and, and this was what, what hit me. He was like, I'm a year or so from retirement as he was telling me my story. So mm-hmm. we know that the highest number of suicides are Caucasian males over the age of 50, 55 or so. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, now we have a lot of more free time on our hands or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. but he is, he was about a year and a half away from being at the highest risk in the highest risk category of suicide, had never accessed the VA, doesn't know anywhere yeah. where the VFW or the Legion was. And he even said, I even forget sometimes that somebody that, that I, you know, that I'm a veteran because, you know, somebody mm-hmm. at the checkout line in Texas, they have the, you know, the, the veteran thing on their driver's license and somebody happens to say, thank you for your service. And it catches him by surprise. And yet <laughs> yep. those are the one, those, those veterans and, and our older veterans that don't have that conception of, of, you know, their own risk, that's a barrier to care, simply not being able to help them understand. You're absolutely right. Yes, exactly. So yeah. And we just need to make sure that we are embracing all veterans. We are not, you know, this, the, the narrative that we hear about all the time, which is still an important narrative, which is still um, because it certainly does happen that our youngest veterans um, deploy, they see combat, they're, they're devastated, they come home with PTSD, and they die by suicide. And again, and that's, again that does happen. And we also need to remember that the vast majority of our veterans who are losing their lives right now are our older veterans, many of whom have never deployed, um, and who are coping with things like retirement, like loss of a spouse, things that, um, you know, and, and then you bring in the, the uh, access to firearms, um, which we know that veterans use firearms more than non-veterans when they're feeling suicidal. And um, what do we know about firearm use. If you're, if you use a firearm, if you're suicidal, there's about a 90% chance that you will die as opposed to other means that non-veterans tend to use more. And so, you know, it's just, um, it is a, um, it's, it's a confluence of factors that really can come together, but we also cannot forget our older veterans. And um, we have to be you know, watching those veterans as you're talking about who are coming out from from living in the mountains and living in very remote areas um, and those who are still there um, and making sure that they are being cared for and have social support and um, know that they're loved and uh, and respected. And um, it's it it is such an important um narrative that we need to just continue to be aware of. Right. It's, it's hammering on that drumbeat over and over again um, until the people who, who need to hear it will hear it. 
and, and you mentioned yeah. uh, caring for all veterans. Um, my father, uh, three of his brothers, um, three, two brothers and a brother-in-law all served in Vietnam between 68 yeah. and 70. Um, so I have, you know, uh, two of them, unfortunately has passed my father and, and, and one of my uncles have passed. Um, but, mm, right. uh, but yes, there's not a Vietnam veteran younger than 65, but there's another right. aspect of, of the, we need to care for all veterans. And, and you've actually testified before Congress on this issue is the issue with bad paper, right? Um, the, the reasons yeah. for misbehavior in 2009 were not the same reasons for misbehavior in 1999. Right. Um, and, and this is something that the bad paper issue and, and service members being discharged for behavioral, uh, infractions, rightly so. We have to carry, you know, the standards of discipline in the military. Um, but they are tied to psychological disturbances. Bad paper is also a barrier to care in many ways, both internally and externally. You're absolutely right. Thank you so much for bringing bringing that up because this is <clears throat> this is such a, this is very it has become an issue very very close to my heart in terms in meeting many veterans who have had bad paper or other than honorable discharge um, for uh, for many for many reasons whether it's um, using drugs or alcohol or mental health problems but being forced to leave the military and then being completely alone in terms of lack of services. Um, VA is certainly stepping up better in terms of getting mental health care to veterans with other than honorable discharge. Um, but many veterans I, who who have that, are, I don't think, are aware of what they, the care that they are able to get at Cohen Veterans Network. You know, we really drive home the point that it does not matter at all what your discharge status is. We will see you. Um, and we know that we need and want to see you um, because we also know that those veterans with other than honorable discharge also have higher rates of suicide. They have so many complications over many years of trying to appeal their, their discharge status. And um, I've become engaged with many um uh, law centers and, and attorneys who are so focused and dedicated to helping veterans appeal um, their their service uh, their uh, discharge status, but it takes years and it takes a lot of work and stress and um, to just get the very basic needs um, that these that these veterans also deserve. So thank you for for bringing that up too. Right. That's um. This is actually um. Uh, where we got started, my clinic got started in local veterans court is because here again, and, and, um, you keep repeating it, but in Colorado Springs, we have five military installations. So, uh, sometimes yep. a veteran gets crosswise with the law and you end up in the court system. And so, um, obviously active duty service members, um, could not access the VA. So they brought on our organization, um, to, to provide mm -hmm. community support for those individuals. And then we found out that we were able to support individuals with other than honorable discharges. Um, uh, one example is a, a female veteran who, uh, she and her husband, they were dual military. Um, she was uh, discharged from the military for uh, substance use, um, with another mm -hmm. than honorable discharge. Um, yep. As it happened, um, her husband first started this and then she started it and both of them kind of came in together. I'm not placing the blame on him, but, um, but his unit discharged him with the general under honorable conditions. 
her unit discharged her with an other than honorable. And it's really just sort of a, mm-hmm. if, and, and people don't realize this in the military, it's just a decision, either one or two um, people mm-hmm. that just, you know, make that decision. Um, and, and that is just one anecdote that happens repeatedly, repeatedly, hundreds, if not thousands of times. You're absolutely, yes, completely. And, um, yes. So it's, you know, again, to those community providers who are out there understanding what, what that even means, what does a discharge status mean? One would assume you've all been, everyone's been honorably discharged or separated or there. It's very, it can get very complicated and, um, and, reasons why one may have an other than honorable discharge um, or bad paper um, really can speak to um, concerns that you that we all need to address, whether it's substance use or, you know, one one um, I'm currently working with a group right now to really think about the the women who have other than honorable discharge and the attorneys that I've been working with also say that beyond substance abuse, military sexual trauma tends to also be one reason why um, women are discharged um, and uh, with other than honorable discharge. And boy, if there is uh, if there is a need for getting help, um, certainly having suffered um, horrible the horrible traumas that many women and men suffer. Um, we have to also remember that men also can have military sexual trauma from, uh, from experiences that they've endured. Um, it can just be devastating and, uh, can cause people to, to consider suicide really, you know, impact their lives in, in some horrible ways. And, you know, one thing that I've been focused on changing my own language about is is thinking about suicide prevention um, as being not just about death and thinking about dying, but in terms of really enhancing our lives and making them better. Suicide prevention is just, it's also about really making our quality of life better. And, um, it's a life, a life that, that, that we all deserve. And, um, and so it really, we should be turning that around to thinking about those people who have had these horrible experiences, helping them to get through those so that they can move on and leave like high quality, enjoyable as much as, you know, lives, um, where they can feel loved and cared for in ways that many of us feel who haven't had to go through these experiences. Uh, yes, I, I really appreciate that point of view. Um, I definitely approach uh, mental health from a wellness standpoint. Um, I believe we need yes. to um, build mental wellness rather than treat mental illness. Um, and and yes. some of that likely is, is very much from my um, you know, clinical orientation. Um, but even to the point that, um, you know, we, we, the, the emergence of resilience and post-traumatic growth and, and the value yeah. of suffering and having been tested and, and overcoming that, right? Even back to Nietzsche, right? Doesn't kills us, make us stronger. I, I'm put in mind of, I think there's, there's either, um, uh, some research that, that Dr. Craig Bryan is doing out of University of Utah about how suicide attempt survivors who access treatment um, uh, uh, describe their lives as infinitely better after that treatment, after the suicide attempt, um, mm-hmm. simply because the it, receiving the support to get through or help manage whatever put them in that suicidal crisis. And I believe he's here talking specifically about service members and veterans. 
um, that, that getting the help to resolve those issues that got them to that place of suicide as an option, um, then helped them live that better life. Yes, that's so beautifully said and so important. You know, I think that, that the really speaking with and learning from um, survivors, those who have had suicide attempts, um, is so important. And this is a, a group of men and women that I've been honored to really meet and, and better know Um knowing too that when you have most people who have had one suicide attempt never go on to a, attempt again or to die by suicide and so you know getting through that that devastating time in one's life um to be and you know really b- being able to then have the incredible life that that one may have afterwards it's um it's very very important to better understand um this extraordinary group of men and women. Uh, I, I certainly agree. And I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate the conversation today, but I also appreciate what you personally are doing and what, uh, uh, Dr. Hassan and the Cohen veterans network are doing. Um, any last thoughts before we kick off? Dwayne, I just, I, I just, so I want to say how much I appreciate you as well uh, in terms of your service to your country, but also the work that you're doing to make sure that, um, that both clinically, but also to really, um, dispel myths and enhance the conversation. Um, it is an honor to be on this, um, on this show and I look forward, um, I look forward to, to connecting again with you, but also I want to make sure that everyone out there knows um, both about the Cohen Veterans Network um, as well as any resource uh, that might be available to help anybody through difficult times. So I really thank you very much. Yes, uh, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think that um, if every veteran who could benefit from mental health treatment um, woke up uh, tomorrow morning deciding to seek that treatment that's one thing we didn't talk about was the dearth of mental health professionals in the in the community. Um, we would all be overwhelmed, right? And so um, yeah. there there wouldn't be enough mental health providers. Um, and so it's really great to see that there are community um, uh, community providers or organizations that are talking about mental health as part of this entire. Um, uh, public health approach to suicide. But I do want to give you the opportunity if people wanted to hear more about you and the Cohen Veterans Network, how can they reach out to you, social media, website, that kind of stuff. Thank you, Dwayne. Yes. Um, so the, the best way, so CohenVeteransNetwork.org um, is our website. Um, you can certainly find us on Facebook, on Twitter, um, and um, I am uh, very, um, you know, I'm very available. Uh, I can be found through the Cohen Veterans Network primary um, general phone number, which is list- listed on the website. Um, but uh, I, otherwise, I'm not so much on social media, which I probably should be. But um, for my own mental health, uh, I've decided to take some breaks from it, <laughs> which is fine. But in terms of um, our presence, Cohen Veterans Network's presence, we are very much uh, there. 
We have um, established 14 clinics throughout the country at this point. We're continuing to be opening more. Um, you can see our map on our website to find where you might find uh, where where we're located, um, and we hope to have 25 within the next few years or so. So um, that's how you can find more information about us. And uh, but I um, I look forward to um, to talking more about this and connecting more um, over the years. So, Dwayne, I'm I'd love to come back maybe in a year or two and see where we are. Um, but uh, we'll 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 take it from there. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. There's a need for mental health professionals who are outside of the VA and the DOD to provide support for those who served and those who care for them. The Cohen Veterans Network, as Dr. Thompson described, is a series of community clinics that focus on serving veterans and their families, which is similar to the clinic that I represent, which specializes in outpatient mental health treatment for the military-affiliated population in Colorado Springs. Caitlin and I recorded this conversation before the 2019 VA and DOD suicide prevention reports were released, but much of what we talked about was reflected in both. The problem of service member veteran and military family suicide is critical. Much of what she and I talked about are things that both mental health providers serving the military population need to know, as well as the members of the population themselves. Thanks for taking the time to listen. To find out more information, you can go to the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST148. While you're there, hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave an honest rating and review. It helps others find the show. As I mentioned in the beginning, you can sign up for our newsletter by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash update. You can join our growing community to get in on the new podcast, Seeking the Military Suicide Solution, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash community. I'd also like to let you know of a series of webinars that I'm producing for NADAC, the National Association for Addiction Professionals. I'm presenting a series of six webinars on service member veteran and military family mental health. There'll be live webinars presented over the remainder of 2019, and after they're complete, they'll be available to watch on demand. See more about the series, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash NADAC to check them out. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness. You can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until next time, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
and I love you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man, you've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.